magnify you. Be magnified in us. It's all about you and not about us. It's all about the work you're doing in each one of us, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you have saved us to the uttermost, and that you're coming again to bring us to glory. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so if you want notes for the sermon, there's the QR code. So if you hadn't scanned that yet, that's second opportunity to do so. Uh, we're in Revelation. Uh, there's a little bit of review this morning since I made it about a quarter through my sermon last week and had to stop. Um, Mike is doing well, so we just praise the Lord that he's doing well. Yep, praise the Lord. There he is. Not in his normal seat, I see, so I'll have to be looking over. All right, yeah. So, so just praise the Lord for that. that. Um, everybody get a chance for the QR code. Nope, oh, somebody's still scanning. So, um, so we're in Revelation. And uh, we did uh, a partial overview uh, last week. And, and this week we're going to do a whole overview. And it's really to just to prep you to be ready to study and think through Revelation. And so um, it's Revelation... Uh, Jesus Revelation, part two, and it's heads up, he's coming, so he is coming, and I think all views agree that Jesus is coming back. That's a non-negotiable. Jesus is coming back. How he's coming back? Well, there's some debate there, but he is coming back, okay? Amen? And, uh, and so today we're going to focus on him, him coming back, but we're also going to focus on how do we understand his message, okay? Oh, I forgot to dismiss the kids. Did we not have a dismiss the kids slide in there? Okay, bye kids. Thank you for just taking that initiative. I guess you're leaving me. All right, so how do we understand his message? We're going to be going from, pulling from Revelation 1, 1 through 11, Revelation 1, 19, John 16, 12 through 15, and then wrapping up with Revelation 22, 6 through 7, and 16, 22, 16 through 21. So turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Whose revelation is it? It's Jesus' revelation given to us, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads out loud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. There is a direct blessing always to reading the word of God. There is an extra special blessing to reading this book. And hearing it and doing what it says to do. And taking hope in that Jesus is coming back. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches 
that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits of before his throne. Oh, there's so many things to talk about there. Come Wednesday night, we'll talk a lot about some of those. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, amen, hallelujah, and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Wow, that's exciting. That's all God. Behold, he is coming. With clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. He's coming. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. Patmos is right off modern-day Turkey on the coast there. It's an island, obviously it says that. On the account of the word of God, the testimony of Jesus, and was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. These are all churches on a route to be that would be uh, distributed around modern-day Turkey. And you know what? We did not. They did not have a mail system back then. If you wanted to send a letter, you had to hire somebody to walk that letter to that place. You know, nowadays we go. We want to send a letter. We want to send a package. In fact, if we want a package, we don't even leave the house. Right? We get on Amazon or whatever mail order thing, and bam, two days later. Well, it's not two days later anymore, but you know what I mean. It shows up at the door. Right? They did not have that convenience. And so these churches, these seven churches, are laid out in a, in a triangle pattern on, all across modern-day Turkey, which is north of Israel. And this would be a route that the guy went to each of these churches and read this letter from John to these seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So Jesus says, write. And now he, it gets very specific as to what to write. Jesus' instruction is, write therefore the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. This is the very clear instruction Jesus gives to John. This is, in my opinion, Jesus' outline for the book. So what are the things that he has seen? Well, what was seen was Jesus glorified. He had seen the risen Christ. So that's chapter 1, minus the prologue. What is the seven churches? Those, that's what's in his time right then, is those seven churches. Chapters 2 and 3. And then what will be? Right, what will be? And that's Jesus' judgment. It it's, comes in the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And there's even seven visions. A lot of seven. Seven is the number of completion. 
the number of wholeness in Scripture. And so that's why John uses seven. So we have some keys to understanding Revelation. Five keys. First, we need to depend on the Holy Spirit. Depend on the Holy Spirit. We, the Holy Spirit is essential to this understanding. This is not an intellectual exercise, though it takes our intellect. It's not purely that. It has to be done in relationship. Second, understand the Old Testament context. Understand the Old Testament context. We need to know the Old Testament. That's why I didn't preach on Revelation until I had preached through the whole Bible. Because Revelation pulls from the whole canon of Scripture. And you have to be able to understand a lot of that canon to understand what's going on in the, old, uh, in the Revelation. So we have to understand the Old Testament. Third, we have to understand the original context. When was it written? Where was it written? What was the culture of that time, right? Fourth, we have to understand the imagery and symbology in the context. Uh, there is so much imagery in Revelation just in the first chapter. Seven spirits before God's throne. Uh, uh, tongue of, uh, uh, of a sword. Uh, white hair, bronze feet. I mean, yeah, it's just full of imagery. So we need to understand those imagery and symbology and we will get into that. Fifth, this is probably a very important thing, is identify the lenses that you bring to the text. What preconceptions are we walking into when we come to study Revelation? And we're going to talk actually fairly extensively about that this morning, those lenses. So first, depend on the Holy Spirit. I still have many things to say to you, Jesus says in John 16, 12, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and, whatever, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the Father, the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We have to know Scripture, but we have to be in relationship with God through the Holy Spirit to understand Scripture. The second is understand the Old Testament. Understand the Old Testament. John has a very uh, unique way of uh, using the Old Testament. Uh, he does not say, thus saith the Lord, and then just quote, quote large sections of the Old Testament. Michael, uh, Mike Heisel says, uh, John kind of takes the Old Testament and puts it in a blender, blends it up, and makes a new smoothie out of it. So you get one word, two words, but you don't get large quotes of the Old Testament and Revelation. But Revelation has approximately 150 allusions and neo quotations of the Old Testament text. It's a literally a literary, literary. There we go. Talking too fast. A literary phenomenon called intertextuality. That's when you can't tell the difference between the original text, the, the quoted text, and the author's writing. They're just so integrated. All right. So understand the original context. Who's the author? John's the author. John is the one that wrote it. That's pretty well founded. Okay. Now dates. Early date would be 56 to 68 A.D., or 8095. Um, I go with the later date, um, but if you uh, go with the early date, that's, that's your prerogative. 
I think the argument for the later date is more, uh, it's better founded, but not to discount the other one. So, uh, AD 56 to 68 or AD 95, early date. Uh, there's a good article, I'll give you a slide on that uh, if you want to read about the dating of Revelation. Location, it's written from the island of Patmos to the seven churches which are in Asia Minor which is modern-day Turkey, okay? That's the location, Gentile country, okay? Not very many Jews, mainly Gentiles. The culture is Asia Minor. It's one of gross immorality and idolatry. There's no uh, Judeo-Christian roots like all society has. It's gross immorality and idolatry, thus persecuting Christians. They, they do not like Christians because Christians are not participating in appeasing the gods, okay? Then you don't appease the gods, then the gods get mad and catastrophe happens. So they're persecuted. Their properties are being seized. Some of them are being killed. They're being exiled by uh, Rome. Uh, because they're not declaring Caesar as Lord, okay? Um, exiled to John is on the island of Patmos, a penal colony, a prison camp, breaking rocks. That's what he was doing. So here's a QR code for a good article on the date of Revelation. So uh, it's also on Faith Life, but if you wanted to pull that up, I should not read it during my sermon, so that's all I ask. It's long. It's well documented. A lot of footnotes to show you the original text and uh, quotes from early church fathers um, and manuscripts. Okay, so we need to understand the imagery and symbology in the context. We have to understand that. Uh, Revelation is crammed full of imagery and symbology, right? It, it's just full of it. And we have to understand what is the author trying to communicate uh, metaphorically, symbolically, and in these images, okay? So first, is there an explanation for the imagery and symbology in the immediate text? Right, right there in the immediate text, even in, in chapter 1, we see Jesus in, uh, in verses 18 and uh, 19, I believe, uh, explain what the candlesticks are, explain who the seven angels or seven spirits are, you see? He explains it right there in the text, so we got to go first to the immediate text to find out what, what is it meant by that. So, and if there's not one in the immediate text, then we need to see if there's an explanation for the imagery and symbology in the whole Bible, right? What is he pulling from from the rest of the Bible? And why is he pulling from there? Why is he quoting from Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Deuteronomy? Because these are all places... John quotes from Genesis. Thirdly, is there an explanation for the imagery and symbology in the cultural context? You can go to the Oriental Institute uh, in Chicago at the University of Chicago, and you can see uh, a lot of the same uh, finds from Daniel's time period, when Daniel wrote the book of Daniel, and you see these Huge throne guardians that are chimeras. Those like the head of a man, the, the feet of an ox, the wings of an eagle. And you know, why did Daniel write in these imageries? Well, he wrote in these imageries because that's the cultural context. 
These were not foreign images to communicate spiritual truths and attributes of spiritual beings. So these are the fundamentals to understanding imagery and symbology in Revelation. And as we go through and we're reading through Revelation, we need to keep these things in mind. Identify the lenses you are bringing to the text. A lens is something that colors the text. Am I just reading the text just as the text, or do I have lenses, and what are they? All of us have lenses. Maybe it's on the content of our preconceptions of Revelation. Maybe it's the idea Revelation is too difficult to understand. I hear that a lot. Uh, maybe it's the preconception that Revelations is a scary book. I hear that a lot. Or maybe Revelation is just weird, right? Or maybe it's on the positive side. Revelation is cool and I'm fascinated. Okay, so what are the lenses? How, how are you approaching this? Another big lens that affects the, the understanding and the outcome of Revelation is what systematic theology do I think in? And I know like half of you just checked out. But the truth is, is that we all have a systematic theology that we think in, whether we identify it or not. We all do theology. And it's actually more dangerous to do theology without knowing how you're doing theology. Does that make sense? How you're doing, what you're thinking, how you think about it. If you don't even think about how you do it, then you are prone to error. So you need to think about what systematic theology do I think in? Do I think of in some kind of hybrid? And what, or do I think in those two major camps, covenant theology and dispensational theology? And you uh, grew up in Bible churches. For the most part, you probably think in dispensational theology. You got into, went to like Presbyterian churches, Reformed churches, then you're going to think more in covenant theology. Depends on like who you listen to, too. Like what kind of speakers you like. If you like uh, R.C. Sproul and, and League of Neo Ministries, then you're going to have a tendency to think in covenant theology. If you like Calvary Chapel and, and Chuck Smith and, and um, Moody Bible Institute, those kinds of things, then you're going to think in dispensational theology. And I know, these are huge terms. But they're really not that complicated. They're systems of thought and application of interpretation of the scripture. Okay? And I'm going to walk you through. So covenant theology. Covenant theology says this. God has made three covenants as revealed in scripture. Three. Okay? The first, he made the covenant of works. The covenant of works with humanity. That would be the Adamic covenant at Eden. You shall not eat of the tree, he says, right? And what did they do? They ate. They broke that covenant. Which brings us to the second covenant. He made a covenant of redemption with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So with himself. He makes a covenant of redemption with himself. Saying, I'm not just going to let my creation go to the dogs... I covenant with myself to redeem my creation. And not just humanity, but all of creation. Okay? 
That would be Genesis 3.15. The pro-evangelicum would be an outworking of that covenant of, with God, that God is making with himself. Third, he makes the covenant of grace with all humanity. That is that all time, all people are saved by grace through faith, and not that of themselves, but it is a gift of God. And that is the economy that God has chosen to work in in every age and dispensation. This is basics of covenant theology. Okay? These kinds of uh, grids affect how revelation is interpreted. Covenant theology typically does not emphasize the literal interpretation of prophecy. They, they tend to prefer a metaphorical use, though sometimes they do literal interpretation. But they prefer metaphorical over literal. It is also known to combine Israel and the church as one entity called the people of God, thus having a metaphorical interpretation of Christ's founders in your reign. And this metaphorical interpretation of the thousand-year reign uh, would be our millennialism or post-millennialism. Meaning, well, our millennial, not post, sorry. Our millennial, meaning there is no millennium. Or the millennium is a metaphorical time period where the church brings in the age. So that's covenant theology in five minutes. It's not really hard to do something in five minutes, but that's the gist of it. Those are the major differences. Dispensational theology. This is the camp that I sent, was raised in. This is the camp that I typically think in, though I am known to sometimes think in covenant theology because it's good to change your lenses. Okay? So the dispensational theology is a theology system that attempts to understand the history of salvation as revealed in the Bible. It's the history of salvation as revealed in the Bible. It sees God as working out his plan progressively. Okay, it's a progressive revelation. That's a very dispensational thought. That's not a reformed thought. Through successive periods or dispensations in so, for example, innocence, the Garden of Eden, human conscience, the fall, a human government, the, uh, the flood to Abraham, and so forth. The dispensation of law, the time the given in Moses, right? From Abraham to Moses. So it's progressive. God is revealing himself a little bit at a time. While the ultimate goal of restoring the kingdom of God remains singular and means, and the means of salvation remains by grace through faith. So it's not like salvation changes in each of the dispensations. In that sense, we agree with the uh, covenant theologian that it is saved by grace through faith. But the, what we do tend to disagree on is the terms of obedience and the way God works with humanity differ in each dispensation. So in the age of innocence or uh, the Adamic period, God interacted with Adam and Eve differently. 
You know, in the, uh, the dispensation of human government, God interacted then differently. Sale saved by faith through grace. Yeah, saved by grace through faith, sorry. We both slows. But the interaction with God and humanity was different in each of these dispensations. Dispensationalism is also commonly identified as a way of interpreting the scriptures. It emphasizes the literal interpretation of scripture, especially prophecy. So it wants to say that what Jesus said is, and how Jesus said it is going to happen. Unless the context dictates metaphorical use. So like in Revelation chapters 1, there is metaphorical use describing Jesus' attributes. Does that make sense? Theologically, it is noted for its commitment to the distinction of Israel from the church. And the promises made to Israel fulfilled, all fulfilled in the thousand-year reign of Christ. That's why there's a millennium. So that Christ can fulfill the promises that he's made. And the promises of God are yes and amen. And the covenant theologian tends to metaphor make that a metaphorical fulfillment, a spiritual fulfillment. So we believe, or I believe, in the literal reign of Christ for a thousand years. So what are my systems of interpretation for revelation? How do I think about that? How, what kind of grids? Well, uh, we're going to talk about them. Those those five predominant ones that are out there. And so when you listen and you hear different talk or t people speaking, you're going to see them grab and use these different grids of interpretation, systems of interpretation. I got to go quick. One, preterist. Preterist. Preterist lens is that Many of the events described in the book took place during John's lifetime and thus provide a contemporary description of events that the churches were facing. Okay? So it, it, they were, most preterists believe it was uh, fulfilled by 70 AD in the destruction of Jerusalem. Typically, it's inherited hold to an early date of writing and thus see the events described as coming to pass during the turbulent reign of Nero. Although some see fulfillment taking place as late as the 5th century, uh, but mainly during the reign of Nero. This view was developed in the early 17th century and has enjoyed a resurgence of popularity in recent years. R.C. Sproul holds this view. Okay, if you know that name, he's a, he's a good teacher. And he holds this view. This is how, how he comes at prophecy. So it's all fulfilled except for the final advent Second coming of Christ is what he would say. That's the preterist view. And if you hold the preterist view, then you definitely have to agree to an early date of Revelation. Otherwise, Revelation is no longer a book of prophecy, but just writing down what already happened. A historist lens. 
sees the events described in the book as a panorama of history from the time of John until the present day. Seventh-day Adventists are historists. Okay? They see it laid out in history as a panorama. So they're placing like the bulls and the things and the two witnesses in history. Already happened. The problem with this view is it's very Eurocentric view of church history as well as a constant need to reinterpret data in light of new developments. So it, though it has uh, some popularity, I don't think it's a very good lens to wear. The idealist lens. This is the, the lens, if you listen to the Bible Project at all, this is the lens that they have, okay? And it's not bad, it's just incomplete in my opinion. It takes the details of the book as general descriptions of the battle between good and evil as it continues into the present church age. Those little attempt to associate the details of the book with any specific event of the past or the future this spiritualizing approach simply focuses on the ultimate triumph of Christ over the forces that oppose him and his kingdom. So it's good in one sense because Jesus is going to win. Amen? He's won. I mean, that would be the hope of revelation, right? Um, it's not so good in that it leaves out very, it just overgeneralizes things. So the preterist futurist lens, also known as the eclectic view, interprets Revelation as being especially pertinent to John and his readers, while at the same time showing how, in their first century setting, has parallels with the future. Uh, this is a complicated uh, view, um, hard to maintain, hard to uh, decipher, but some people hold this uh, view, the, the preterist futurist lens. All right, and then there's the futurist lens. This is the lens that I typically uh, function in and, 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 and live in. While the focusing on the purpose of the book for the original audience, so I'm, I'm recognizing original audience context and culture and why it was written to them and how it affected them, it still holds that chapters 4 through 22 of Revelation will be fulfilled literally in the future. Thus, details of these chapters will be worked out in real events yet to come. This is where I stand. I'm not dogmatic on it, and I'm more than happy to talk about the other perspectives and the other grids of interpretation, but this is my lens. And I encourage you to figure out what your lenses are. And as you're listening to different uh, content and reading different content, um, uh, different podcasts, that you say, hey, what's their lens? How are they approaching this? Know your lenses. This will help us understand Revelation. It'll help maybe sift down so it's not this just big hodgepodge of information. The last but not least is what books or movies have formed your thoughts on Revelation? You know, uh, some authors that have written on Revelation or written fiction about Revelation uh, have formed our cultural perspective on this. 
authors like Joel Rosenberg and Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye or Hal Lindsey, right? R.C. Sproul has also uh, put some stuff out there, but R.C. Sproul would be a preterist. He's, he's more uh, on things have already been fulfilled. Uh, Amir Safari uh, is a very popular modern-day futurist grid of interpretation. Now, I'm more comf uh, used to futurists, so the most people that I'm most familiar with up there are futurists, and they take different little spins on things. R.C. Sproul is not. He's a preterist. And I have great respect for R.C. Sproul and Legionnaire uh, Ministries. So just, you have to ask yourself, what are these things that are influencing it? And, and why are they influencing it? And can I take that lens off and put on another lens? We don't want to be dogmatic about Revelation. The one thing we're dogmatic about is Jesus is coming That's what we believe. Revelations 22, 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what soon, must soon take place. Jesus says what he's selling to John are trustworthy and true. You can take them to the bank. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bride and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let those who desire take of the water of life without breath. Salvation is available to everyone. Today is the day of salvation. This is the time of grace. Judgment is coming. Come to Jesus. Come and receive the water of life without price. Verse 18, I want everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The word of the Lord. It's Jesus' revelation. Jesus gave it to John. Heads up, guys. He's coming. He's coming. Every eye will see him. He's coming to bring judgment. He's coming for his church. And we can understand his message. We can. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the tools that he gave us. So let's, over the next couple of months, dive in and explore this message. And as we come to him, may we receive water of life without price. How cool is that? Without price. Freely given. Grace upon grace. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you, Jesus, are coming again.
We thank you that you are coming to set all things right, and we look forward to that day. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.